0: This is Climate One. our zero emission cities in our future? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. If
1: the COVID-19 crisis is showing us anything, it is showing us that we are all a completely interconnected society where this pandemic is hurting everybody. And climate change is hurting and will continue to hurt everybody.
0: It's been said many times, we're all in this together. But as the current health crisis so dramatically reveals, not all of our communities have been impacted equally. Today, we explore the role of cities around the world in building a just and sustainable future for all their citizens. And clear
2: skies are only part of the picture. What we're looking for is not just a uh, low-carbon city or low-carbon world. We're looking for a successful city. Uh, a successful city has a place where people have jobs. People can create uh, welfare for the families and do what they need to do. It is a thriving place. My guests
0: today are three experts leading the charge toward creating that thriving city of the future. Ani Dasgupta is Global Director of the Ross Center for Sustainable Cities at the World Resources Institute. Lauren Faber O'Connor is Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Los Angeles under Mayor Eric Garcetti. And Eva Gladick is Founder and CEO of Metabolic, a consulting firm based in Amsterdam that is working towards a sustainable economy. All three are joining me remotely today to talk about building and maintaining zero-carbon cities. This program is generously underwritten by the Climate Works Foundation, which has supported Climate One since I created it more than a decade ago. The most recent report by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, says that to reach our climate goals, every city in the world must be at zero carbon emissions by 2050. Where do we stand right now?
2: Ani Dasgupta gives us the global view. As you know, there isn't a city today in the world that is carbon neutral or zero carbon. There will be some hopefully soon. And those will be in countries where the energy supply is more greener than others. So people talk about Copenhagen for example. We did a study last year um, looking at is it possible to get to zero carbon by 2050, and our conclusion from that work is it is possible even with the given technologies that is there today, and that that initiative has to be focused on the big sectors in the in cities that are the big um, carbon emitters. For example, buildings, which is the biggest one, transportation waste, materials that used. But what also came across clearly, Greg, is not only these things needs to be uh, zero carbon, but the energy used in the cities needs to be um, uh, green, which is a critical factor that cities often don't control. So cities needs to work with their regions um, to get to a zero carbon outcome. But the science, at least at our work, shows it is absolutely possible. But at the same time, we actually have to kind of use, live, and manage cities differently to get there.
0: Eva how do you look at cities holistically trying to get to zero emissions?
3: Well, um, I think Ani already covered a lot of the kind of points that you would take into account in a holistic perspective. But um, one of the things that, you know, we always um, emphasize is this whole systems um, approach. And the fact is that Um, Something that's often overlooked in looking at um, moving to zero emissions for cities is consumption-based impacts. So basically all the uh, materials that cities are consuming, um, all the food that people are eating, all the materials that are coming in to produce all the buildings Um, these actually have embodied carbon emissions that are very significant. And we recently finished a study for the city of Boulder, Colorado, where we actually calculated how much of these emissions, how much of the total emissions that you can attribute to Boulder are in this um, kind of consumed uh, material, and it's over 50%. So it's very significant. So if you actually want to move to to being a zero emissions city, Um, You have to deal with, indeed, your own buildings, how you've designed your infrastructure, your urban areas, Um, you know, uh, all of those kinds of things that have to do with what's going on in the city itself, but also what you're consuming, the energy and the materials. Um, When it comes to really looking at it from this holistic perspective, you also have to look at the drivers of consumption. So, Um, it's very easy to think, okay, to decarbonize the mobility system, let's just put in a bunch of electric cars. But that can actually create knock-on effects where we're demanding much more energy and resource-intensive materials that we can't recycle very readily yet. But actually, we need to look at how do we design our urban fabric in such a way that we don't need to drive, that we actually, that um, it's very easy to walk because neighborhoods are porous, because we have Almost everything that we need in in our close proximity. So these are kind of systemic ways of thinking about cities and moving to zero carbon.
0: Lauren Faber O'Connor, people think of Los Angeles. Obviously, they think of of cars. Is that fair that that cities often undercount the materials in, in, impact, kind of the the consumption part? Because what I hear about cities is a lot about buildings, cars, then maybe food waste.
1: We're learning a lot about consumption-based emissions, actually, um, and I commend to all of you. If you are interested in consumption-based emissions, C40, which you mentioned, the mayor is now chair of, which is a coalition, a network of 96 megacities of the world, and they are really raising the bar. Together, we are raising the bar on what it means to uphold the Paris Climate Agreement and how we lead on climate action. But one of the things that, because we're learning a lot more about embodied carbon and uh, consumption-based emissions, C40 actually recently put out a report last year on consumption-based emissions, looking at some of the key drivers of emissions based on individual behavior. Um, And essentially, it looks at all uh, 96 cities and shows that if we can address our consumption emissions, that's about 10 percent of global emissions right there. It's it's supposed to be an empowering um, idea, though, because we always are looking for opportunities to, as individuals, be part of the solution. And so, when you look at your food consumption, when you look at your air travel, when you look at the way you get around uh, the city or elsewhere, um, those are real things you have in your power to make a difference. But just in terms of you know looking at things piecemeal as a city in LA, we have to look at things as a as more of a holistic, interconnected, uh, woven fabric across our missions because. A city like Los Angeles, we own and operate our own municipal utility. We own and operate the Port of Los Angeles together with Long Beach as the largest port complex in the nation and beyond. And we own and operate our own airport, LAX, the busiest airport. And so we have to look at, as we're moving toward more renewable energy, as we're electrifying our transport, we then take on more of that responsibility through our municipal utility as we're moving toward uh, electrifying our buildings. We're taking on that responsibility, again, through our utility, making sure that we are increasing our efficiency so that we're not overburdening the grid, but really have the power in our own hands With as a, as a city, the way we're structured in L.A., to have huge, huge impact
0: glad you know we talk about uh, lowering consumption, Yeah, that's certainly that's happening now as people are not shopping, et cetera, but doesn't that isn't our economy tied to us, consumption we're trapped in this system that's driven by consumption, and we're hearing well we need to consume less, but isn't that sort of prescription for tanking the economy
3: um well so there's a there's a number of things to unpack here so um consumption based emissions don't necessarily have to do with personal consumption, when you're looking at the city context, it has to do with all the kind of material that's coming in to support the infrastructure, etc. Um, so that that's actually a much larger piece. Um, and a lot of that, so um, you can get the same amount of, of service and value out of um, the, the economy with many fewer materials, if you manage to actually decouple material throughput from um, service delivery. So there's through smart design through moving to a circular economy, we can actually provide the same amount of consumption in terms of value or goods or or, um, experiences delivered with many fewer resources. So it's it's really that kind of that critical um, idea around how do we actually manage to do this decoupling. and I mean, of course, you get into a lot more philosophical questions, too. How much do we really need to consume? What is the point of consuming all of this stuff? We we want to consume to the level where, you know, we're satisfied, we have the experiences that we want, we're, we're not wanting for anything, but there there's a level at which it just becomes empty beyond that as well.
0: Right. And we've got, you know, right now, a lot of low-income people that um, aren't perhaps consuming enough when, it, you know, they don't have the level of comfort or security that we would uh, expect them to have, that they would like to have. A recent study from Harvard analyzed air quality and COVID-related deaths in every county in the United States. They found that even a small increase in long-term exposure to fine pollutants or particulate matter is associated with a 15% increase in the COVID-19 death rate. In other words, the more polluted your area is, the more likely you are to die from COVID-19, which attacks the lungs. Those study results were no surprise to Lubna Ahmed, Director of Environmental Health at We Act for Environmental Justice, a community organizing group in New York City.
4: As public health professionals, I think the thing that we're constantly thinking about is vulnerable communities. So we have climate change, environmental degradation, you have issues of racism, wealth inequity. All of these existed before COVID-19 hit. Anyone impacted by pollution, not just the elderly, is in danger of infection by COVID-19 because they face this elevated risk of having underlying conditions. And this is due majorly in part to long-term or cumulative exposure to outdoor and indoor air pollution. This has to do with a history of environmental racism that has existed in this country for so many years that we in the environmental justice movement are You know, fighting so hard to alleviate. It's almost like we all predicted that this would happen. And we're constantly being reactionary. So as we're coming up with solutions, it's all very short term. Okay, let's provide aid to this hospital, like in this moment. But what are really like systemic changes that are gonna be put in place to ensure that these communities are not always bearing the brunt of issues like this? the reverse effects that this crisis has had on air pollution, outdoor air pollution, ambient air is really incredible. I just fear that one, you know, people feel like this is a long-term solution somehow that like, okay, the skies are clear now, like look, our earth is healing itself is incredible. But like, what about seven, eight months from now, if we resume life normally, the other thing I worry about is like this kind of dichotomy thinking that we cannot improve the earth's air quality functioning as everyday humans. You know, the only time this is even remotely possible is if there's a crisis it is possible. It's just a matter of, you know, investing in the right technologies, investing in renewables, being just more conscious people of the earth to ensure that we're reducing emissions.
0: That was Lubna Ahmed with We Act for Environmental Justice in New York City. Ani Dasgupta, I'd like to hear from you uh, responding to that, You know, from Lubna talking about this kind of connection between the earth is healing itself, and perhaps that's a longer-term thing, but there's also this in- equity and inclusion piece uh, that she mentioned.
2: Two things that are striking to me about uh, what's happening around the world, um, the fallout, every country, how poor people are much worse affected not only from the medical part of the crisis, but the ensuing economic crisis that's taking place in some country and will happen for months ahead. Everywhere, everywhere you see, if you look at you know, New York, if you look at India, what's just happened in the lockdown, it's just striking how vulnerabilities are showing up. A lot of people, a lot of us included in this uh, call, have been talking about that we have been building economies and societies that are kind of geared towards growth and not towards long-term resilience suddenly we see it. One crisis takes place and everything one after. How a social crisis or medical crisis so quickly becomes economic crisis and so quickly becomes a physical crisis of public transport system not working. Um, that I think that point of how vulnerable our poor society is and how much we have to work about to build resilience is so critical. We argued um, and always argue that What we're looking for is not just a climate uh, low-carbon city or low-carbon world. We're looking for a successful city. Uh, A successful city has a place where people have jobs. uh, People can create uh, um, uh, welfare for the families and do what they need to do. That it it is a thriving place. uh, That it has high quality of life. We just discussed about whether we need, uh, you know, how much should we consume, and we have argued that we should talk about. What is the quality of life we want rather than what we need to consume? Um, and finally, can you do these two things while actually not producing that much carbon and reducing carbon footprint? That is a strategy for a successful city. I hope Lauren talks about Lauren's uh, L.A. strategy is very much good towards its three outcomes. The question is, I think for all of us, this clear skies that, that the Harvard study you talked about actually provides us a kind of a um, shocking but good experiment, that what will happen if there were no cars uh, spewing uh, ga- um, carbon or factories, that that citizens across the world are able to witness what would it be like to live in cities that are safer, quieter, uh, cleaner, and we can breathe air. Um, and I hope that this particular outcome, though we didn't plan it, actually can help us use a political momentum towards these changes, because we know that these changes are possible to get there. But just like COVID, we all need to work together. And it's not just government policy, citizens' behavior, our choices of how we use, our choices of not using cars and using public transport, these together gets to um, an outcome that we are seeing. But I just want to finish by I can't stress enough how how much... This particular crisis showing us that how vulnerable uh, our poorer communities are and whatever we do in the future, the building resilience, economic and social resilience, should be core strategy for any one of us who are trying to rebuild cities from then on.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about designing successful cities for everyone.
2: Coming up, improving our cities by changing our diet. One of the biggest things cities could do, all of us could do, is to eat less beef that single thing could actually dramatically shift how much acreage is needed to grow soybean and other crops to feed uh, animal stock.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton and we're talking about creating carbon-free, sustainable and equitable cities. I'm coming to you from my home in the Bay Area, and my three guests are beaming in from their homes. Lauren Faber-O'Connor is head of sustainability for the city of Los Angeles. Ani Dasgupta is with the World Resources Institute in Washington, D.C. Eva Gladek joins us from Amsterdam, where she leads the consulting firm Metabolic. I asked her how the social safety net in the Netherlands is responding to the current health crisis compared to the United States.
3: My general impression is that it, it's much better here. Um, so I'm, I'm originally from the United States. My parents are right outside of New York City right now, and um, I've been hearing from them and from a lot of my friends back home um, what kind of dire situations people are facing, not being able to get through um, on the phone to, to the unemployment office, um, having just a complete lack of security about rent and, and all sorts of expenses. Um, I started my company here in the Netherlands um, almost eight years ago, and right when the crisis here started, um, the government immediately said that if any small business owner was not able to Pay um, salaries. Ninety percent of those salaries would be covered indefinitely throughout the crisis. There has been a freeze on evictions; like no one can be evicted for not being able to pay rent. Um, all sorts of systems have been put in place. There's there's a lot of security. And immediately, we were also told that we can defer all of our taxes for the coming throughout this entire period to basically assist in any um, kind of uh, issues. And and these aren't these aren't even loans. These are basically um, grants and and uh, you know. Um, interest-free uh, kind of tax deferrals, etc. I can't speak for the For the entirety of Europe. I know that the situation in the southern European countries is far more dire and of course there's a lot of conflict between the European nations about how to resolve some of these issues. There's obviously wealth disparities here but all of this points to this question of resilience and one of the things that I I really think um, this this whole crisis has laid bare are the cracks in the system that we've built, um, the inadequacies of certain things and and also the fact that inequality ultimately is a risk to everyone because as you have um, this extreme disparity in, in distribution of wealth, you create huge swaths of the population that are extremely close to um, the yeah the poverty line and are basically not able to survive any kind of significant period during a crisis. And that starts to break down or risk breaking down the entire functioning of the eco- economic system, even for those who are wealthy and hiding out, out somewhere. so um, And that's just one of the many things that that this has revealed. it's It has been a tragic, but also very illuminating um, experiment.
0: Lauren faber O'Connor, uh, Governor Eric Garcetti of Los Angeles gave his State of the City address. It was quite dark. He said the city's under attack. The fiscal situation is the worst it's ever been. How is that going to affect uh, Los Angeles's ability to get to net zero and to invest in green infrastructure? He announced an ambitious Green New Deal earlier this year. How much of that is risk now, given the current fiscal environment?
1: well the, the current fiscal environment is is risking everything it's it's even risking our jobs you know the uh, large proportion of the city family um including myself will be taking furloughs 26 furlough days in the coming fiscal year but those are the same things we have to do and we still count ourselves lucky to have jobs where we see such extreme you know inequities not just pre-existing but now being uh, created and divided even further. and you know, it's interesting to hear what Ava was saying about what's been going on in the Netherlands because a lot of those things that I guess um, in Europe are seen as ways to, to keep people from you know being on, on the brink uh, are things that the mayor instituted immediately upon the crisis, instituted immediately a eviction prohibition for both residential and commercial. Um, as well as deferral of of taxes, deferral of um, rents in housing, uh, rent-controlled apartments and, and homes, and has been calling on the federal government for a rent freeze as well, which is not in our authority to be able to do. But you heard him say that yesterday in the state of the city as well. All of these things he recognizes are really ways to protect people. And in the future, when we build back, Uh, We don't want to necessarily build back to the normal that existed predating the pandemic, which was sustaining these types of and growing these types of inequities, but really building back to a new normal that celebrates our diversity and brings us together and lifts people up, whether that's through um, access to housing, whether that's through access to college, um, all these things that really will make the difference between who is disproportionately impacted by dirty air or unclean water, again, which makes you susceptible to these types of pandemics. To see the um, the improvement in our air quality well beyond anything that I've seen in my lifetime, um, some of the cleanest air in the world in Los Angeles right now is an inspiring look at what can be and how quickly the, the earth can heal itself. It really is Exciting, but not at the cost of a pandemic, not at the cost of people's health, not at the cost of people's livelihoods. The message, the takeaway cannot be that the only way to reach this kind of regenerative planet um, is through stopping all activity across the world. That's not the take home.
0: Ani Dasgupta, uh, there's some things that are being rethunk, reconsidered. Globalization is being reconsidered right now, these kind of far flung, Fragile uh, supply chains. From where you sit, how do you see globalization being reconsidered uh, as as countries talk about kind of bringing production, bringing things closer home? There's sort of a, you know, our country first mentality that could rise out of this.
2: I think two opposing thoughts are racing through all of our minds during this period. Um, um, One is, I think all of us. Predict that we will see a lot of discussion of making supply chains much more resilient, closer to the source, closer whether it's consumed, uh, so that we are not dependent on these uh, disruptions uh, or not affected by these disruption supply chains. Which, in a kind of a scientific way, or in a kind of person like me who is interested in low carbon, is a good thing. Um, actually, this will reduce carbon footprint of moving things around. Um, it might lead to good things. But we also fear, and I fear very much, that this is the good thing part will be also um, married with an idea of exclusion and and closing down boundaries um, and lack of globalization or or global uh, partnerships, uh, which will not be good. As we can see right now from what's happening with the pandemic, for for us to solve um, this kind of problem, and this is not the last global crisis we will have, we already know that uh, what's going to what is happening already not will happen from the climate crisis cities across the world actually communities across the world are facing um climate related outcome already there were more heat related death in india last year than any year before that um so these are things are happening we just don't read about it um and um so i think these opposing forces greg i don't know how will it pan out um Something good might come out of building more resilient, more connected, uh, more, much more circular economy, as Eva was talking about, that has materials have less carbon footprint as they were consumed. Um, but I think closing down barriers, borders, and uh, being nationalistic, um, I don't think at least the work I do is going to be good. The best thing we do uh, in our organization, we actually, Lauren, work very closely with C40, is actually how cities learn from each other across the world. That's the fastest way people learn. So, um, I wish I could tell you exactly how it pan out, but these two thoughts are actually going through, I think, everyone's mind, including where I work a lot, about how will global cooperation increase uh, because of this or decrease because of this, and we are hoping it's the, it's the former.
0: Eva uh, Gladek, your thoughts on that, and you think that we got to be careful about not um designing future of cities for one moment or one crisis? As bad as COVID is, we have to think beyond COVID and uh, and not kind of overreact to this current crisis and kind of design cities um, with this pandemic in mind.
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, there's a tendency now to, I, I in our previous discussion, Greg, we talked about how um, people might be scared now to get on public transit because um, there's now this kind of risk of exposure to to this pathogen and that, you know, uh, we have been making a lot of progress on moving towards reusable cups and, and materials and in the kind of retail sector. And now that's also potentially going to be less interesting. I do think that these are not designing uh, the system, you know, to respond to these particular concerns is not the right thing to do. This is an opportunity to think about what kind of system do we actually want, what kind of future do we envision for our cities and for our economy, and how do we actually um, try to address multiple challenges at once when when looking toward that future, and then actually use this crisis as an opportunity to put money and resources into that direction, um, to invest in infrastructure that is, let's say, future-proof to the extent that that's possible against multiple different types of um, problems. So um, instead of thinking, okay, well, we need to revive this existing public transit system that has all sorts of issues with it, what kind of public transit system can we envision in the future that addresses both health and mobility concerns and decarbonization and all sorts of other things at the same time? And also looking at um, what does that mean for urban design? Related to the kind of globalization versus um, kind of uh, closing off of borders, I also think that there are multiple ways to look at that, uh, that Question: You know, like um, we know for a fact that we have um, kind of inadequately dealt with um, the uh, the resilience of our global supply chains because they are too concentrated. They're they're not designed for for the kind of uh, optimal transport of resources. But there's lots of ways to deal with that that don't involve necessarily shutting down borders. We can also create local resilient resource flows and economies paired with certain further distance, more global chains, et cetera. So I really think it all has to do with us using this as an opportunity to envision the kind of future that we want to create and then putting resources toward building that future and using it as a kind of leapfrog moment to also address some of these um, crisis issues.
0: Lauren, Faber O'Connor, what are some things that are, are possible now that were kind of un- unimaginable uh, before we're in this moment where things, you know, uh, cities are shutting down streets to because uh, there's not much car traffic and kind of pedestrians are taking over streets. What are some things possible now that were not really imaginable pre-crisis?
1: Well, there's there's a number of things that we're learning and that we're taking on that may not have been possible before. Certainly not in such a swift time frame. And a lot of that comes from what Ani was talking about is through collaboration and learning from other cities. Um, you know, it's been incredible to see the kind of engagement that our C40 cities and our cities around the country, around the state, around the country, have been having on a regular basis. Uh, Our mayors talking to each other to talk about lessons learned, to ask each other questions on how we dealt with one thing or another, and and to to share some of the things that we've been doing to improve people's lives, to improve or alleviate the situation. Uh, You know, I remember hearing just last week about one city, talking about um, helping and rebating the sale of electric bikes. Uh, You know, we're looking at, the mayor announced just a a week ago, a new program called ADAPT, which is moving our our street sweeping and our paving from residential areas to high traffic corridors now that have been really difficult to close down, really difficult to do any work in the public right of way, that now we're able to accelerate that action, which really will help people as well. We're seeing that in accelerating timelines for our public transit. We're looking at bus lanes and, and bike lanes that have been hard to take the time to put in as well. These are major opportunities. Teleworking itself is also something that has not been uh, widely adopted in a lot of industries, certainly not in the public sector. And now we're seeing so much more uh, opportunity where people would maybe uh, not necessarily in the public sector, but in the private sector fly to a meeting, huge carbon footprint there. And now they're seeing that that client relationship can can still thrive uh, without that kind of face-to-face if, if it's not completely necessary. So we're seeing a lot of things um, mm-hmm. even around permitting, streamlining, to get businesses up and running quicker, to um, look at what we can do to increase our housing construction, which we this is only showing how much we uh, continue to direly need more housing. Uh, But in terms of the supply chain and the local versus global, I agree with what Ava was saying. There is a role for the global supply chain, which can have significant carbon impacts for the good or for for the worse. But if we can impact that, just think about the scale that we can affect. And at the same time, looking at our local infrastructure, huge opportunities for job growth, for career growth, uh, whether that's in the recycling sector, where we need to develop local markets for circular economies, as as Ava was saying, um, our local water infrastructure so that we're not dependent outside of the city for resilience reasons as well. All of these things are really helping bring more equity into our system as well as a stronger economy.
0: You're listening to a conversation about transforming our cities. This is Climate One. Coming up, we're all in this together,
3: or are we? We can either choose to join hands and do this together to double down on the climate crisis and all the other environmental crises that are facing us or to isolate ourselves, point fingers and and blame others.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. Sponsorship for this podcast is from the new book, Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change, an illustrated guide on how to talk to climate deniers. Dr. John Cook, founder of the website Skeptical Science, takes us on an educational tour through the world of climate disinformation. He provides insightful and often humorous tips for debunking popular myths. Our listeners ask me all the time how to talk to climate change deniers. Now I can suggest a copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change. It's a funny and informative read for people of all ages and great preparation for those holiday dinners with your own cranky uncle. Changing people's minds is a difficult task, but identifying and preventing the spread of misinformation with proven data and scientific evidence can be just as important. Pick up your copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change today everywhere books are sold. For more information, visit crankyuncle.com. This is Climate One. We're talking about the pathway to better cities. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are three experts in urban planning and sustainability. Eva Gladik of Metabolic, Lauren Faber-O'Connor of the City of Los Angeles, and Ani Dasgupta of the World Resources Institute. One key ingredient for a successful city that doesn't often get talked about is food. Not all communities have access to affordable, healthy nourishment. Recent school closures and unemployment due to COVID-19 have only worsened the problem. How do we rebuild our food system to make them more equitable, more sustainable, and more resilient?
3: The food system is the single largest source of impact that humans have on the planet. Um, That's one of the things that we know that it has to transform very radically if we actually want to move to a decarbonized, sustainable um, economy. And cities have a huge role to play in that. For one thing, we know that the food system currently occupies 38% of the surface of the planet. And if you include, um, if you take into account the parts of the earth that can support plant life, then it's 50%. And we know that based on the FAO's projections, food um, output will is is estimated to need to double by 2050. Now that, if you just do the math, is impossible. So if we are already using half of the earth for food production and that food output needs to double under the current efficiencies, we would That would basically mean no nature left, that all of our land would be used for food production. Um, another thing that's going on in the food system is that we're moving around huge amounts of um, resources, um, nutrients in particular. So we're extracting phosphorus and nitrogen from soils and we're moving that into the cities. So cities are like these resource drains in a way that are sucking all these, um, all, all these nutrients from their hinterlands and then processing them. Um, into waste, either food waste or human waste. And then a lot of that just gets flushed out into the environment and causes eutrophication or other issues. We're not recapturing what is actually a really valuable resource. So if you start to think of more circular cities and what they need to look like in the future, first of all, they need to stop being these kind of major, just one-way sinkholes of consumption. They actually have to start producing. And when it comes to the food system, that means capturing those really valuable resources by re-engineering Wastewater treatment systems to actually beneficially recover those resources and turn that into food production, maybe not in the city itself, but at least in the peri-urban region so that we have these um, production systems that are um, really closer uh, for the most part to to the centers of population and the centers of these re, uh, nutrients. So then you have these close uh, much smaller cycles of nutrients. You're not sucking resources from the hinterlands anymore and you're creating local economies that are also then providing new kinds of employment and allowing people to thrive in that context. So there are multiple benefits that you get from starting to close those cycles on the urban scale.
0: And, and is Charlotte, North Carolina an example that's kind of a US city that's that's taken some steps in that direction?
3: So Charlotte has committed to becoming a circular city. We actually developed a a strategy together with um, the city a couple of years ago, and they're now working toward that in multiple different ways. So a a large part of that focuses on inclusive economic growth and development and and trying to actually tap into the circular economy as a strategy for reducing inequalities in in the city context. So uh, Charlotte, in a kind of ranking of the 50 largest cities in the U.S., has the lowest social mobility in the U.S. So if you're born into poverty there, you have a, less than a 5 percent chance of getting out of poverty in your lifetime, which is a pretty abysmal figure. So the idea that um, the mayor's office had with Charlotte was that if they can use the circular economy as actually a strategy to rebuild local value chains and actually create new um Uh, kind of forms of employment. It's this whole, what Lauren was talking about, using the green economy as a lever to actually move toward solving multiple problems at once by creating new forms of employment.
0: Anidas Gupta, the circular cities, is that happening anywhere? It sounds like something that might be good for Boulder, Charlotte, but can that happen at at, um, other cities maybe that aren't as wealthy or aren't as uh, U.S.-based?
2: I think cities across the world are thinking about that in different ways. Uh, it's very much, as, as I was saying, uh, this idea of um, how do you actually decrease a carbon footprint is not just in the big infrastructure sector, but also in consumption. But I just want to, I agree with all, all the things I was uh, pointed out. The thing that I want to point out is there, there are many things cities can do um, that is beyond urban agriculture. Uh, is how they work with their city regions and how they create a regional um, uh, economy that is good for the region and also good for the city and um, not only food that ever talked about, but how water is managed, how air is managed uh, these things cannot be done in jurisdictional boundaries um, and there are many examples of that that nature, and we are working so the water is one example uh, there are two hundred cities across the world that will be without water very soon. Um, and how actually the, the, to solve that, you can't just solve it inside the boundaries of cities. You have to work with the city region for them to work together to a more sustainable, reusable water, um, like bringing water supply and water resources together. LA is very familiar with this part of the story because they had to figure it out. Um, so so things like that are happening. What is also very much happening is what uh, Eva talked about. I think there is a lot of cities things cities can do on recycle and reuse of water, not only from the waste that i ever talked about, but how water is conserved in from buildings, of uh, rainwater harvesting. There are things that you can build infrastructure differently to aid towards a much more circular uh, uh, economy that is cir- circularizing resources around creating new jobs or creating new ways of building things. The food story is a very interesting story. One of the biggest things cities could do actually for carbon footprint cities, um, all of us could do, is to eat, eat less less beef. That single thing could actually dramatically shift how much acreage is needed to grow soybean and other crops to feed uh, animal stock. Um, so, you know, I want to underline it's not just infrastructure and policy, it's also behavior and individual choice um, that we need to make to get this thing going. And that is why this This particular moment for me, Greg, uh, and I completely agree with Eva, we should not be caught with COVID and we should think long-term, all of us should. But it actually has shown us that it is possible to make big changes. It is possible to get societies to actually act very differently for collective good. And that is inspiring in some ways, that it is possible to get people together and people will stay at home because it's good for not only them, for everyone else. These are the kind of things, lessons I hope we learn Because to do anything, as i saying, we would need like a whole society effort.
0: If you're just joining us, we're talking about zero emission cities at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Ani Dasgupta, Global Director, the Center for Sustainable Cities at the World Resources Institute, and Lauren Faber-O'Connor, Chief Sustainability for the City of Los Angeles, and Eva Gladick, Founder and CEO of Metabolic, a consulting firm based in Amsterdam. We're going to go to our lightning round, first asking Lauren Faber-O'Connor, What is the urban transit system anywhere in the world that you admire most?
1: The first one that pops into our mind that we work with a lot is the city of London. Uh, They have really uh, taken the issue of air pollution, made it something that people really understand through a robust air quality monitoring network, and enabled the city to then make some, some big sweeping changes to uh, whether that means congestion pricing and creating a low emission zone, electrifying their taxi cabs, really going super quick and how they're electrifying their buses as well. They're, they're serving as a great example around the world.
0: Eva Gladick, what's your favorite city to bike in?
3: <laughs> well, I, I would have to say Amsterdam because I live here and I bike. I don't even have a car, so I, I live on my bike and it's amazing. <laughs>
0: Ani Dasgupta, what's a city with
2: great urban planning for the next 20 years? Well, there are many cities. My most exciting personal choice actually is Seoul, Korea, because how much it has changed, which is a very big, complicated city, but how much it has changed by simply planning. There are many examples like that, but Seoul really is one of my favorite places where change can, they showed change is possible.
0: Eva Gladek, a city you find really frustrating to travel around in? As an urban thinker and visionary,
3: I mean, uh, I guess this is just based on recent experience. Buenos Aires is a bit of a mess, and I think I I, I tried biking with my entire group, and I think we the buses actually tried to run us off the road.
0: Anida Skupta, a city that is doing a really good job advancing water as a civil right.
2: As a civil right, I think Durban, South Africa, is doing the most in figuring out how the poorest part of society can get access to water by making water free for the first 50 liter per capita consumption. Uh, I want to underline water scarcity is gonna be one of the major, major things you will hear next as a, as is across the world.
0: True or false, uh, Lauren Faber O'Connor, Los Angeles had sufficient ventilators, so it sent some to Detroit. That is true, good planning. Uh, last one, Eva Gladick, one opportunity for a circular economy is mining gold from human poop.
3: <laughs> Potentially. Um, we do poop out $12 of gold each year. Each person does. So if you figure out how to do this, then you could. <laughs>
0: we have a question from Dylan via YouTube. What opportunities are presented by the collapse of oil prices and minuscule interest rates? Ani Dasgupta, cheap
2: oil and cheap money oh I, I thought the opportunity that's provided by the oil uh, cheap oil and the, the difficulty oil companies are facing is actually go wholehearted and promote the alternatives that exist on solar wind and because all the time we've, we've been told we can't do these things because the oil companies are too powerful and too big and too omnipresent for us to change this might be a moment for the world governments to come together and make the tipping point and find jobs for the people who work in the oil industry, in um, wind and solar industry. Because the economics for doing that is there, the political will, I hope, can happen.
0: Another question from YouTube, Uh, this one for Eva. This is from The Fearless Peanut. Uh, I know this may sound a bit obnoxious and controversial, but why is slow economic growth a bad thing? Is it good to stop obsessing over economic growth and focus on equity and environment?
3: Well, if you ask me, um, slow economic growth is not necessarily a bad thing, but we don't have an economic system that's designed to handle it. Our entire system is designed to work on growth. And so you can actually move to a different model of economy, a steady state economy, for example, or uh, economies that have entirely different logic behind them, where you can actually handle not having continuous growth. And I do think that these are things that we have to Really look at very carefully and see is the economic system that we've designed the appropriate one, and I'm actually working on a book on this topic to really look at what kind of economy is compatible with a circular sustainable outcome that produces equity and resilience and I don't think that it's the current system that we have now
0: we've been talking a lot about reducing carbon emissions, getting to zero emission cities very important and necessary at the same time we know that cities need to adapt to to changes heat weather, extreme storms, that sort of thing. Uh, so, Ani Dasgupta, as you as you look around the world, how are cities that are, that are urbanizing, uh, those cities are mostly on the coast, and yet we know that the coasts are vulnerable, and there's some discussion about managed retreat from certain coastal cities. So how's that going to happen, where you have this massive migration into cities, while cities are going to face stress to perhaps gradually relocate from where they are?
2: You're absolutely right. I mean, we are seeing across the world the impacts of climate change already. With flooding, for example, urban heat, uh, drought, uh, lack of water, and, and coastal flooding. Uh, there is two things, data points that are important. You know, most most people in the world live uh, on the water or near the water, uh, simply because that's how cities grew in the world, um, uh, because of uh, trading groups. A- and the other statistic that's very important is about a billion people across the world um, live in um, informal, semi-formal, what the right word is, um, in housing that is not uh, structurally uh, uh, or legally sound. Now, these two things overlap, right? The poor people get to li- live in, in land that is the most vulnerable. So a lot of poor people actually live in flood-prone in areas. Um, so one of the things that will happen and has to happen is how we actually focus on this one billion people, one billion people out of 3.5 or 3.6 billion people in the world that live in cities, it's a very significant proportion of people who live in um, semi-formal, informal housing. So our recommendation has been for cities to focus on housing and actually bringing this stock up so it can become uh, an important housing stock for which it is, but get better service, better protected, flood protected. And some places relocated relocation always has been very, very tricky because most of the time relocation has, been, has not been done in a fair way for the poor people. It has often been associated with people landed part of the uh, society taking land, important land over rather than actually protecting the poor. So relocation, by, by definition, doesn't actually have a lot of, lot of trust um, in a lot of societies we work in. But some of that would have to happen. But more can be done by actually focusing on where poor people live and actually making their housing more sound, um, making making it more protected and making better service. The dichotomy we face in the richer countries in the world, we're talking about optimizing use, meaning using less electricity, using less energy. In a lot of places we work, in 650 million people in cities actually don't have energy access that is dependable. So some place in the world, energy access has to increase to get to better quality of life. So this discussion has to be about quality of life Rather than just about consumption, then again we kind of go to a dichotomous discussion between the rich and the poor. Um, so this is a very important point, Greg. The more important point of this, this is actually happening now. It's not a something in the future. And and cities across the world that we're working and trying to figure out what to do. And my own judgment is this is a way we can get more cities in the world thinking about climate because they're facing it right now. And hey, Greg, if done. I could just add something sure. here, yeah, favor.
1: you know. It- if, if, this, if the COVID-19 crisis is, is showing us anything, it is showing us that we are all a completely interconnected society at where this pandemic is hurting everybody and climate change is hurting and will continue to hurt everybody. Um, what we're seeing in terms of the disproportionate impacts in communities in this current pandemic are illustrative of the kinds of disproportionate impacts that we're seeing and will continue to see with regard to climate change. And therefore, the impacts that are felt in some of the places that Ani was just talking about will hurt all of us collectively, whether that's the downstream impact on our economy, whether that's the downstream impact on health costs, whether that's the downstream impact on national security as well, where we see that destabilized democracies then are more susceptible to disruptions that lead to uh, security threats and and war, which of course, when one area is in that kind of conflict, it affects us all and our own resources. So if anything, not only do we have to work on um, fortifying people who are already being impacted, but we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to be able to minimize the impact of this crisis by reducing our greenhouse gas emissions at a record pace. We have to be able to take on that ambitious uh, commitments across the world while also protecting communities that are already hurting.
0: Eva Gladik, your thought on, on, you know, uh, you think in systems, how to build new systems while kind of retreating or managing systems that are under stress and what we ought to be thinking about uh, as as we close out.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I really uh, love what Lauren just uh, said and uh, what Ani said before. I, I think that fundamentally this crisis has shown how everything is interconnected and it has shown us that we, we're at a kind of inflection point. We can either choose to join hands and do this together to double down on the climate crisis and all the other environmental crises that are facing us and actually move forward into a better future together or to close off, um, isolate ourselves, point fingers and, and blame others. And, you know, this is a kind of... Um, It's a historic crossroad that we're facing as humanity, and I think it's important that we have dialogues like this to also encourage everyone to take the the right path in moving forward.
0: This is a new thing to have a guest in Washington, D.C., one in Amsterdam, one in Los Angeles. None of us got on an airplane to participate in this. Do you think you're going to fly less in the future, each of you? I hope so.
2: (laughs) I, I think so, and I hope so, too. I think that's right.
0: On Climate One Today, we've been talking about the zero-emission cities of the future. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests were Ani Dasgupta, Global Director of the World Resources Institute Ross Center for Sustainable Cities, Eva Gladik, Founder and CEO of the consulting firm Metabolic, and Lauren Faber-O'Connor, Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Los Angeles. Videos of this and other conversations are available at climateone.org. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other major platforms. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.